welcome to Politics in Question, the show where we ask the big questions about our political institutions, how they're failing, and how to fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. So it seems like one of the developments of politics right now is that a lot of folks on the left are starting to ask some big questions about the Constitution. I've noticed more and more people saying maybe there's something undemocratic about our Constitution. Maybe we should change our Constitution. On the right, there's calls for a constitutional convention. And of course, it's very hard to amend our Constitution. But how much is our Constitution the problem? And what might a more democratic Constitution look like. So I, I'm so thrilled to have as our special guest today, Sanford Levinson, who's a professor of both law and government at the University of Texas in Austin. In addition to writing the wonderful book, Our Undemocratic Constitution, he was on this before everybody was starting to talk about it. He's also written Framed America's 51 Constitutions in the Crisis of Governance and Fault Lines in the Constitution with his wife, Cynthia, which is also a graphic novel, which I own, and it is wonderful. I was hoping to get my eight-year-old daughter into this. She's very into graphic novels, not quite ready for that yet, but I think she will be. So welcome, Professor Levinson. Thank you very, very much. I'm delighted to be here. So let's start with what is undemocratic about our Constitution. How should we think about the uh, U.S. Constitution in the context of of what we think of as democracy in the 21st century? Well, you know, from one perspective, the answer is surprisingly easy, that one could define democracy in the 21st century as, first of all, holding a fair process of elections where the majority, if it wins, or or a majority, some majority will win, some majority coalition, when it wins, will be able to implement a political program. And if it works, they'll presumably return to power in the next election. And if it doesn't, the rascals will be voted out of office and be replaced by presumptive reformers. Now, you might want to include in this definition some notion of so-called liberal democracy, which would put certain limits on what a majority could do. So here we get into discussions of individual rights so that not even you know an empowered majority could take away certain rights. And we're certainly having that discussion, for example, with regard to abortion. But generally speaking, I think you could say that you identify a system as democratic when their elections really matter. And under that quite simplistic definition, the United States doesn't score all that well at the national level. Interestingly enough, at the state level, the score might be considerably higher because if you look at a number of states around the country, elections really do matter. In Wisconsin, for example, it was extraordinarily important 
when the Republicans came to power, I think in 2010 with Scott Walker, uh, just as in California, it is very, very important that Democrats now control the governorship and the legislature and can pass all sorts of progressive programs. The same thing has been happening in New York as a result of the Democrats finally getting control of the New York Senate. At the national level, though, in order to create a government with a capital G, you have to win a number of elections by fairly hefty margins over quite a few years. It's not enough to get the presidency because the president has to contend with Congress. And it's not enough to win the House because the Senate has a death ray veto over anything the House passes. And the Senate is a daily abomination with regard to any 21st century notion of democracy because of the degree to which it is so obviously unrepresentative of the American people as a whole. James Madison in Federalist 62 described this feature of the Senate as an evil. He then went on to say, well, it's a lesser evil because the greater evil would have been the torpedoing of the entire constitutional project. But I often tell my students that the U.S. Senate has no greater de facto moral legitimacy than slavery, because slavery was another evil that was recognized as such by many people in 1787. But they too came to the conclusion, you know, it's a necessary evil because unless we accommodate the slave states like Jim's current South Carolina, you're not going to have a constitution at all. So unless you accommodated the small states like Delaware or Rhode Island, there's going to be no constitution at all. And James Madison reluctantly, very reluctantly supported that feature of the U.S. Senate. But he never said it's a good thing. It's simply a necessary evil. One can talk, obviously, about the Electoral College. One can talk about the peculiar role that the United States Supreme Court has played through our history and certainly has played even in the last month. So it seems to me like shooting fish in a barrel to demonstrate how undemocratic the U.S. Constitution is. And I didn't mention actually what you mentioned in your opening remarks, that the U.S. Constitution is the most difficult to amend national constitution in the world today. Whereas if you look at most state constitutions, they're far, far easier to amend. And for me, that's a feature rather than a bug. Let me say one more thing. I did write Our Undemocratic Constitution in 2006. And the conclusion I came to from reading the reviews and just, you know, hearing responses, is that most people really don't care whether the Constitution is democratic or not. What people want out of a Constitution is satisfactory outcomes. If the outcomes are satisfactory, 
I think many, many people would be quite content with an 18th century benevolent despotism. But the real problem, and this is the thrust of the second book, Framed, America's 51 Constitutions and the Crisis of Governance, that by 2012, when I wrote Framed, it was not merely that one could criticize the Constitution for violating a political theorist's sense of what democracy might entail in the 21st century. Robert Dahl had written a great book making some of these similar points, I think around 2003 or maybe 2001. But by 2012, you were in a much more modern reality where if you looked at polling data, most people thought the country was going in the wrong direction. Most people did not have any real approval or confidence in Congress. And the only approval the president got was from members of his own party. There was relatively little bipartisan approval. The Supreme Court kind of hung on with majority approval. But now we have achieved a situation where even the Supreme Court is tanking. And if you ask people fundamental questions, do you approve of these institutions? Do you have confidence in them? Do you think they are concerned about people like you? In the 1960s, 65% of respondents said, oh, yeah. I think the national government cares about people like me. Those days are over. So that the only national institution that people today express confidence in is the military. And it seems to me that is a very, very deep and serious problem, not simply of abstract democratic theory, but rather the expectation that people have that their political system, whatever you call it, will supply outputs that are relatively satisfactory along a number of dimensions. And today, wherever you are on the political spectrum, left, right, or center, unless you think the status quo is really terrific, it is extraordinarily unlikely that you really believe the national government will be able to confront effectively what you believe the most important problems of the day are. Wow. Well, first, I just want to thank you for joining us. This is such, I mean, it's such an important topic. And I think too often we, we don't pay enough attention to the Constitution. Um, we we don't think about it. We don't even think that we're empowered to change it. And I think we most certainly are. And for our listeners, I want to just take a brief you know, step back and, you know, with regard to the constitutional amendment process, this in and of itself is quite revolutionary. At the time of the ratification of the Constitution, I mean, we had a written Constitution. It was our second one. The Articles of Confederation comes first. We declared our independence from England and the English Constitution, which was not written. And a large part of the intellectual debates that preceded the Revolutionary War resulted from a different understanding on either side of the Atlantic of that document. 
Americans took the lesson of, well, we're going to start writing our constitutions down because we want to make sure that we agree on what this means. And so when you write a constitution down, you need to include a formal process for its amendment. And the Articles of Confederation had one, and the federal constitution we have now had one as well, has one. And I just want to say for our listeners, just think of it like this, that there's two methods of proposal and of amendments, and there's two methods of ratification. Uh, with regard to proposing amendments, you can either have the, a proposed amendment come out of Congress, or you can either have a proposed amendment come out of state legislatures. Regardless of where it comes from, though, you're going to have to have two-thirds of the members of Congress or two-thirds of the state legislatures approve that amendment before it is officially proposed. Then, once that's completed, you have two methods of ratification. And here, you need three-fourths vote to, to actually succeed. And you can either ratify uh, an amendment in state legislatures, or you can ratify an amendment in a popular ratifying convention. So those are the kind of two different ways. And of course, we've never had a constitutional convention of state legislatures call it to propose amendments. Uh, that's something that we've seen come up time and time again, particularly on the right. Um, instead, Congress has always proposed our amendments. But I just want to I want to ask a question here at the outset, just to see to what extent are we being a little unfair, a little unfair to our constitution? And and by that I mean to what extent do we are we not thinking about what it does in the in the way that that I think we we sh we ought to. I mean, you mentioned James Madison, and he writes in Federalist Forty Seven, you know, the famous passage: "The accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary, in the ha same hands, whether of one, a few, or many." whether hereditary, self-appointed, or elective, may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. And he says if the Constitution was, was guilty of this, then, then we should oppose it. I think the, uh, a more accurate way to think about the Constitution is not about setting up a process whereby we choose our rulers who will rule us in between elections, but rather is something that uh, it's quite revolutionary. It creates a permanent space for politics, politics being an activity in which we govern ourselves. It's not about making outcomes. It's about the activity. The outcomes are important too, but it's the activity. The problem with that is that space has always gotten conquered by tyrants. And the period before the Constitution was ratified in state legislatures, where the, all of the power resided in the lower houses of the state legislature in the people's hands, they didn't respect individual rights. They were running roughshod over individuals. They were repealing laws left and right. They would pass laws. Things were not very good. That was the challenge that the Constitution was designed to uh, prevent at the federal level. And the way they did that was to make sure no one rules. It's not a, democracy is about the people ruling. Well, no one rules in America. The Senate and the House check each other. Madison doesn't like the way it's chosen, but it has to be chosen in that way. And it has to be small because if it's large and it's chosen by the same process that the, that the House is chosen by, it's not going to be much of a, a check on the House. It's just going to be another House. The president needs a veto over what the Congress does to defend his sphere and separation of powers. All of these things are designed to create this permanent space. And so to what extent when we go in, and I'm not saying that we ought not to do it, right? I'm not saying that we ought not to reform the Constitution in different ways and amend it in different ways, but I think it's important to start from the premise of our document, not perfect by any means, is designed precisely to ensure 
that no one rules in America. And the majority not getting its way is not the minority ruling. And the minority not getting its way is not the majority ruling. It's literally the absence of rule. And to what extent, when we begin to go in and take out the auxiliary protections and precautions that James Madison writes about with separation of powers, with checks and balances, with you know federalism, we've already undermined a large degree of this, I think. To what extent are we eroding the ability of the Constitution to preserve that permanent space. And then we get back into a situation of, well, somebody just got elected. There's a majority. They get to decide whatever it is they want because they are the rulers. Well, I really do think that it leaves very, very little space for politics because what you're describing creates a situation, as you yourself are admitting, that nobody rules, that it becomes almost literally incredibly difficult to move away from the status quo. And that as time goes by, there is greater and greater recognition that we need a government. American exceptionalism is in part defined as an almost paranoid fear of government. But what about all of the change that we've had? I mean, America, despite, I mean, we've done a lot and we've had a lot of, we have had a lot of controversy throughout our history and it has happened. It has happened within that space. It hasn't happened in spite of the constitution. It's happened because of the constitution and the structure whereby we could go into the arena in these venues created by it and to debate one another, and then to, yes, both be rulers and ruled at the same time. I think that's a much too optimistic reading. The most important change in American history was getting rid of chattel slavery. And that happened, first of all, chattel slavery was protected by the original Constitution. Secondly, the Civil War was generated in part by the original constitution because it was impossible to achieve any kind of resolution through Congress and the presidency. What about the Civil Rights Act of 1964? What about about all the legislation that happened before the Civil War, after the Civil War, all of this stuff that happens during Reconstruction happens because of the constitution, not opposed to it? You want to deny the reality that 750,000 people died in 1861 and 1865 because of constitutional failure. That is why we get rid of slavery. No, the South, the Constitution didn't fail. The South saw the writing on the wall and they decided to leave politics to declare war and turn to violence to resolve their disagreements instead of participating in debate in the institutions that the Constitution created. The Constitution didn't fail. People in the South, I think it was the wrong decision, but they made the decision to leave politics and turn to violence. So that wasn't a failure of the Constitution. They argued quite sensibly, actually, that the Constitution correctly understood allowed states to secede when the so-called sovereign states came to the conclusion that the original deal was not being adhered to. The original deal protected slavery, and they viewed Abraham Lincoln, rightly or wrongly, as the enemy of slavery and designed that he was a radical who was out, in essence, 
to overthrow the existing system of government established in 1787. You can agree or disagree with that understanding, but the war was a war about the meaning of the Constitution. 750,000 people got killed, and Reconstruction was at best an extraordinarily mixed success. Many people would say it was an abject failure because states retained way too much power after the war was over, and they used this power in order to impose um, segregation and Jim Crow. And then you you wanna jump ahead to the civil rights movement of the 1960s, and I agree with you that that was an extraordinarily inspiring period. And now we have a Supreme Court of the United States that is out to gut the greatest single piece of legislation of that period, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And you have a Republican party that is really quite hostile to the notion of civil rights as declared during the 1960s. So, but I just wanna say there's slavery, but and Lee, I'm gonna def, uh, defer to you right now, but one second, one second, Lee, like it's, there's everything that has happened. America has got a lot of problems today. It's also got a lot of great stuff for it. And we've got a lot of legislation in both race areas and other areas. And all of that stuff throughout American history, be it land grant universities, be it the infrastructure that we have, everything, all of the changes that we have made have come out of the institutions that were created by in the spaces that were created when we ratified the Constitution. That was my point. And I think that my, I guess my, it's like, why is it not working now when it's worked to do in a lot of very perilous times to do a lot of really big stuff, some about race, some about other stuff. And, but all of a sudden we've decided that that structure, which is completely fine to decide, but we've decided that that structure is no longer capable of producing big change. When in, why did it work for the past 230 something years? Well, it's worked in various moments and not in other moments, I think would be the larger point here. But let me, let me, be, before we spend the, the rest of the episode relitigating, uh, the, the Civil War, um, I, I want to try to kind of move us forward in a, in a way. So, Sandy, you know, what I hear you saying is, what we ought to have is a more majoritarian system where majorities can come in, can have a chance to do policy, and then voters can evaluate that, which is you know kind of this responsible party government, Westminster style, which we just don't have. But various reformers from Woodrow Wilson to the APSA committee have, have wanted us to move in that direction. And then, James, your point, and we've got, gone back on this, is that it should be really, you, you have to, to, to negotiate in mo- multiple dimensions to really build you know, support for stuff, you have to do politics. And this is, you know, and the, and that's the, the Madisonian view, I think, is in some ways a, a synthesis of both of those points. I mean, Madison doesn't believes that that we should have government that should be able to do things that should have majorities that emerge. But he also believes that those majorities should be temporary and fluid. So, you know, I, I mean, I think I'd, I'd offer a view that's kind of a kind of a synthesis of, of both of these views. I tend to be somewhat skeptical of the responsible party narrow majoritarianism view, because one, I think it assumes that 
you know, two years, three years is really enough time for voters to evaluate the performance of a party. Moreover, to the extent that voters are mostly partisan voters, they see things through partisan lenses. And, you know, and then there is this challenge of of if you're just voting in a 52 percent majority and then they pull things in one direction. This has been long the criticism of the Westminster British system as you kind of wind with this pendulum style that that becomes very unstable as well as why don't the 48% get their proportional share. You know, this is why, I mean, this is why like I'm a supporter of proportional coalition multi-party government because I think then you get the fluid coalitions that are necessary that reflect changing majorities, but it's not voters are voting in a, a clear majority coalition. Uh, they're voting more broadly. So in the, that, that, uh, that this wonder, wonderful piece that I, I recommend, and I want to ask you a little bit more about that too, this, um, democracy journal, democracy constitution symposium in which you and a bunch of others kind of deliberate what a constitution would look like. You, you did mention proportional multi-member districts. But what do you see as the kind of interaction between the party system, elections, and the Constitution? Because on the one hand, you know, elections should mean something. On the other hand, elections are not mandates. They're artificial choices. And you know, things could go back and forth very quickly if it's just 52% gets all the ability to, to exercise their policy. And then it's just, you know, who's that 5% in the middle who's going back and forth? They're not particularly well-informed or, or engaged. Yeah, no, I think those are excellent questions. And we do agree about the need for more proportional representation. And one of the problems with talking about the so-called Madisonian system is that James Madison and most of his colleagues had the fantasy that we could avoid political parties. Their notion of leadership very clearly or more or less clearly spelled out in Federalist 10, was that we would be governed basically by benevolent elites who would think in terms of the public interest and not in terms of what Madison called factional interest. And James is absolutely correct that Madison was appalled by what he saw in the Virginia legislature in which he served. Federalist 10 is the most vigorous all-out attack on American federalism that's ever been written because states were cesspools of factional interest. And the argument is that if we moved to a national government, we could be governed by benevolent public spirit elites who would not fall victim to faction. By 1800, you had political parties. And we've had political parties thereafter. And political parties are very different from the model of nonpartisan, elite, public-spirited government that Madison was propounding. So what we have had to do was to figure out how a system of political parties will work in a constitutional structure that was designed to avoid political parties at all. So with regard to to James's argument about the Constitution working, I think the Constitution has worked 
at times. I don't think it's an entirely negative story. But my friend Bill Galston, who writes a weekly column, he's at Brookings and he writes a weekly column for the Wall Street Journal, says that the political process works fine when you have a relatively dominant political party and or not much ideological space between the parties. So we look back, I mean, James mentioned the glory days of the civil rights movement. One of the things I always emphasize is that the civil rights bills and the Voting Rights Act were bipartisan. A case book that I co-edit includes Everett McKinley Dirksen's really great speech on the need to break the filibuster. And the Voting Rights Act would never have passed without the support of Representative William McCulloch, a Republican from Ohio. But those days where, first of all, the Democratic Party was dominant, and secondly, there was real connection between moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans. They fought about some issues, but could really come together on others. Today, we have highly polarized political parties, and they share the political space basically 50-50. So the idea of coming together in bipartisan compromise is a fiction. The bipartisan compromise that many of us are celebrating is that Joe Manchin, after two years, was willing to come to an agreement with his own political party. There is not a single Republican so far who has signed on to the Manchin legislation. And if it passes, it will pass by a vote of 51 to 50, because Kamala Harris will break the tie through the Reconciliation Act. And so I think under those circumstances, the Constitution simply doesn't work, that it generates a politics where people are at swords points with one another. Now, I agree with you, and I think with James, that we should not venerate a party system that allows 52% to run roughshod over the 48%. Brexit is perhaps the stupidest designed referendum in world history because a truly major issue for the entire future of Great Britain and Europe was decided in a single up or down vote of 52% of the British public. This is insane. But it does seem to me that there is there is a lot to discuss about creating a better electoral process and breaking the stranglehold in the Senate of relatively small and unrepresentative states that it is now the case that a majority of the American population lives in nine of the 50 states, and they get a grand total of 18 
of the hundred senators. That's simply not democratic under any plausible notion of democracy, even more to the point it just guarantees that the Senate especially will be unwilling to pass legislation that most of the people desperately need, whether it's medical care, urban infrastructure, climate relief, or whatever. People living in the smaller states just aren't that interested in many of these programs that admittedly tend to benefit the urban areas of the country. And I think that's a huge, huge problem. But I agree with you. I agree with both of you that simply supporting, well, let's have two and only two parties and let's allow the party that manages to eke out a 52% victory, let's allow it to do whatever it wants. That's a very, very bad idea. We agree on that. So I'm going to ask one more question, and Lee, I'm going to, after Sandy, then I'll turn it over to you. But I mean, I think that in America, the people are sovereign, right? I mean, they're sovereign. They just happen to be divided up into states, but they're ultimately sovereign. And in many respects, you could say the federal convention created, basically seceded from the Articles of Confederation because they didn't follow the provisions laid out in the Articles for changing them. And the reason why that was okay, as you know, is because the people not the state legislatures, but the people made the decision and they appointed popular ratifying conventions that uh, uh, voted for delegates. And then they opted to change. They used their sovereign power to change the structure of the government. But with regard to, and I think that was very different from the argument that the states, the South was making during the Civil War, that the state legislatures were sovereign and they had the authority. That clearly isn't correct, uh, you know. But I think the parties are very interesting. I mean, they, they transcend the separation of powers. And when we talk about parties being um, very dysfunctional and, uh, and not very helpful to our system, it's precisely because they transcend the structure of our constitution. And when we talk about polarization, and I think these things that you, all of these different elements I'm trying to tie together because I think they come together very nicely. Uh, when they talk about polarization, it appears in our history when political activity, right? When that kind of is at an all time low, why? Because now we have this constructed version of these two parties that are unified, when in reality, if you actually look and scratch the surface and you force them to kind of come into debate with one another, it turns out that they don't agree on much. They don't agree on much internally. You know, so I guess Bertram Gross, uh, who is a scholar practitioner, kind of like myself, is fabulous. One of the best books ever written on Congress in the 1950s called The Legislative Struggle. He says that compromise emerges out of the struggle. Compromises emerge is out of the struggle. It's very similar to Madison's point in Federalist 51 about how justice and the general good, that's what kind of out of this struggle, and Lee alluded to this earlier, we get all of this give and take in these places. It, we get compromised because out of that struggle, you get the outside comes in, you get people get new information. You know what won the Civil Rights Act uh, debate in 64 wasn't bipartisanship. It was the Dr. King in the civil rights movement, raising this issue in the public consciousness, you end up getting people in the Midwest in places like Ohio that didn't really care about the issue. And prior to that, it was evenly divided between North and South. But because you saw on television 
like fire hoses being turned on women and children and dogs barking and all of the terrible things that were happening, all of a sudden the religious community in the Midwest gets involved, they get engaged, they push their representatives who otherwise just weren't really into this to get involved. And all of a sudden that swings the balance. And then you can have a process that plays out that results in a compromise. And at the end of the filibuster, Richard Russell, one of the great opponents of this uh, of Civil Rights Act of 64, stands up and says, you know what? This is now the law of the land. He's not happy about it, but he urges his colleagues and his constituents to accept it because the process reconciles losers. When, you, when it plays out, it reconciles losers to that uh, outcome. Not always perfectly. And when we don't have a process, then you can't get reconciled. But the question I want to ask is, what do we, does it mean? What does it mean when we talk about the Constitution working? I think we too often just gloss over that. Is it that we, that we get to, uh, we get, you know, these kind of legislative outcomes that we identify in advance, that those things happen and that we merely assemble them in places like Congress? Is that what it means for the Constitution to work? Or does the Constitution work when it basically creates this architecture? for where we can go and our elected representatives can go and engage in the activity of self-government that, yes, does produce things in the end, but the purpose is not the thing that is produced. It is the action and the activity of debating and adjudicating concerns and trying to win and pass legislation. And out of that process, you get compromise. Because look, of course the Senate's not democratic. It's not supposed to be. A democracy is when the people rule. And again, no one rules in America. The Senate has to be different than the House by definition. Otherwise, the House is very, very powerful. And that's what they were trying to avoid with the state constitutions from the 1780s. And so I guess my question is like, what does it mean? I mean, am I, do I have it wrong? Because it seems to me that we can go in two very different directions if we just merely change how we define what it means for the Constitution to work. And then it's either really bad and it doesn't work or it's serving its purpose and we're not doing our part by suiting up and going into the arena and debating and arguing and trying to win. I think it's an excellent question. I'm giving a course at the Harvard Law School in the fall. Actually, two courses, one on compromise, the second one on constitutional reform. And with regard to your question, I think that it really does raise extraordinarily important empirical issues as to how we decide when a constitution works or not. Here's where I'd put on my political science hat, forget the fact that I'm a lawyer, that the constitution works, I would argue, when most people are willing to say, you know, I'm not getting everything I want, but I do think that the process is a fair process. My voice was heard. Some progress is being made. And I look forward to the next election and the next set of conversations. But things are, you know, going along pretty well. I think the Constitution does not work when people say, look, the system is a rigged political system. It is simply unfair in terms of what voices are heard and what voices are marginalized or out and out unheard. And so why in the world should I respect the outcomes of a stacked 
deck with loaded dice. You know, I think much of the time people have been relatively satisfied with what the government does. And this goes back to the, you know, some of the opening remarks that we don't think of the Constitution all that often because in some ways it's not that important. The political process is working well enough so that only law professors and political theorists engage in conversations of the kind we're having of whether the Constitution is democratic, too democratic, not democratic enough. Most people don't care. But if you ask people, do you think you're getting a fair shake in the process so that we're really getting good compromises? And they say, no, we're not. Then I think the Constitution isn't working. The other point I would make, because I know that we're basically at the end of time, is that compromise is an extraordinarily tricky notion because compromise presupposes that you actually have certain values that you're really going to argue for and even fight for. And at some point, you'll draw a line in the sand and say, yeah, I recognize politics is the art of compromise, but I'm simply not going to allow you to enslave people, or I'm not going to allow you to do this, that, or the other. So what we always have to do is create some sort of spectrum or curve where you indicate, in terms of your most important values, what you're willing to give up in order to make a deal. And I do the same thing. And neither of us is really happy at the end, but both of us agree that we're still working together. Each of us has gotten something that we wanted, and we go out for dinner together, and life goes on. But I really do think, I mean, one of the problems is, as you know very well, the word compromise has become almost a curse word in a lot of contemporary politics, where politicians run on the basis that I'll never compromise. And both of us agree, I think, that that's a dangerous version of politics. But it's also true that we really can't imagine what politics would look like if somebody ran saying, look, I don't have any principles or values I really strongly believe in. You know, I will accept any deal that comes along because I don't stand for anything. <laughs> so we're really walking a tightrope, I think, in our own lives and assessing other people where we have certain values that we really do stand for and even think are worth fighting for. And then other values where we're more willing to, to deal. And right now we have a political system of two highly polarized political parties characterized, I would argue, much more in the Republican Party than the Democratic Party, but some people would disagree. But a militant hostility to the idea of compromise itself. And you and I agree 
that you cannot have a functioning political system if everybody draws hard lines in the stand and says, you know, I'm not willing to make any sort of deal. So let me ask one final question here, and we'll be brief on this. Um, what is one change to the Constitution that you wish people were debating more? Talk about the Electoral College a lot, the unrepresentativeness of the Senate. Like, what, What's an underappreciated change to the Constitution that we should be talking about more? You know, I would give different answers at different times. How about today? But, <laughs> but you know, right now, I think... My general answer is the difficulty of constitutional amendment itself. And what is so important for me about the second book in the sequence framed, you know, America's 51 constitutions, is that most people don't really realize that there's more than one constitution in the United States. They tend to think the Constitution is the U.S. Constitution, and a remarkable number of lawyers, let alone ordinary people, never think about their state constitutions. But state constitutions are really, really interesting. And one of the realities of state constitutions is that they're easier to amend And there are some people who criticize state constitutions because they're so relatively easy to amend. I see that as a feature rather than a bug, because what it does is to allow the sovereign people to, not only too easy to amend, but also a number of states, roughly half the states, have initiative and referendum procedures. And not all of them are on the West Coast. There are some on the East Coast as well. So what this means is that if enough ordinary people become dissatisfied with the legislature and the governor because they think they've been captured by selfish factions, there are ways to do end runs around them through popular initiatives and referendum. And you've seen that operate in Maine, in Ohio, Wisconsin, as well as much better known California, et cetera. I mean, it's interesting that James mentions the notion of popular sovereignty and we the people, because for me, one of the central problems with the national constitution, and Madison is proud of this in Federalist 63, where he says there is no space in the national constitution for any kind of genuine governance by the people themselves. It's all going to be done through representatives. Now, there's a lot to be said for representative government, but I think if you look at many of the American states, one realizes that direct democracy can be a valuable safety valve. and it works in part to generate the kind of public discussion that I think James wants more of that is very valuable. One of my favorite states is Nebraska. Nebraska is the one state in the union that's gotten rid of its second house. This was in 1934. Nebraska 
is not so big that it needs a two-house legislature. So they simply abolish the Senate and they have the so-called unicameral. They did it because the, the Nebraska Constitution allows for initiative and referendum. And so the people of Nebraska voted to get rid of the Senate. And whatever you think of Nebraska, for good or for ill, nobody seriously believes that it has paid a huge price for getting rid of the Senate. And so that is the kind of conversation that I wish we had much more of. But the national constitution kind of forbids because we just don't have that procedure available to us. Whereas in much of the country, you could be standing on a corner trying to get people to sign a petition. And if enough people sign the petition, then that could generate a statewide conversation about how the state should proceed. Well, go to the states. Thank you, Professor Levinson. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.